and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I am Sean KB on another solo episode. I am here in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, with a man you all know and love. And if you don't know and love him, it's because you haven't heard his amazing podcast called Well, There's Your Problem or seen his amazing YouTube channel. I am talking about, of course, Justin Rosniak, a.k.a. Do Not Eat One. What's up, Justin? Hey, how's it going? It's going very, very yeah. well. I am here in the abode, in the household, the Do Not Eat, eat household, and uh, very happy to be with you and be here. I just want to say congratulations on being the first New Yorker to come here. Usually they make me go there to record podcasts, and I'm like, I don't understand how any of you people live in this in, in, in New York City. It's just, it's too much. <laughs> uh, I, I hear you on that. Um, I'm very honored, actually, to have been let into... Uh, into your home here, and, and what a lovely abode it is. The only thing that is a little saddening to me is that uh, Liam Anderson isn't here right now. No, he's uh, he's in York, Pennsylvania right now because it's his dad's birthday. So yeah, Okay, well, that's a good reason, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, here we all are, and I did make the trip from the very overwhelming New York down to the lovely Philadelphia, and, of course, uh, in keeping with the general theme of this episode and also your life's work, I came by Amtrak train. Wonderful. I know. I heard you had to sit on the floor. I did have to sit on the floor. And I I will say that that's only partially Amtrak's fault because, um, yeah, I did. I had another train mishap getting to the train, which is a very kind of public transit, like uh, centric sort of thing. I was the L train, my subway train in New York City uh, had construction problems. So I had to actually take the L train into Manhattan, but I couldn't get all the way to my transfer. Long story short is I had to take a taxi to Penn Station from Union Square. I almost missed my train. I barely made it. I got there at the last minute. So I would have got a seat if I hadn't stepped into the car door like literally 30 seconds before the train left the station. So uh, I did sit on the floor, but you know what? The conductor was great. And once there was a seat open, he escorted me uh, to a seat and said, uh, enjoy the rest of your trip. So. Shout out to Amtrak. Amtrak conductors are universally very nice. I've never had an unpleasant experience. Speaking of experiences, um, how? Well, I won't ask you to give a number because that'd be really like weird and obscure. But like, do you have a good amount of experience when it comes to Amtrak trains in the U.S.? Um, so, I mean, I've I've mostly traveled the Northeast Corridor. I've been as far south as Roanoke. I've been as far north as Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, I've taken the Adirondack to Montreal, which oh, is, cool. that's a hell of a trip. Um, and then, um, I took the capital limited for free, but that's, uh, I don't know if I can tell, tell you about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a little, uh, uh, train related graft. That's very on brand for you. I, I, my, my friend who works for Amtrak, uh, <laughs> you would have a friend that mm-hmm. works for Amtrak. I mean, you are pretty yeah. well known to be, um, the podcast slash YouTube left's uh, train guy. Yes, that that's me. I, I talk about trains. I'll tell you all about trains. I'll talk your ear off. You'll be just dying to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I must say, um, they, there's a friend of our show. He might even be a friend of your shows too. His name is uh, Alex Jokes Patak. Have you heard of the man? Yes, that's where I got. Um, I, I, I mentioned in the last where there's your problem, uh, the goo that's going to kill us all. I just stole that straight from him. Uh, he's very, <laughs> his jokes are very, very stealable. He's a very funny guy. He's also a good friend. And 
When I was, I want to say it was right before I went on an episode of uh, Pod Damn America called Wob Damn America and did a history of like the IWW basically, uh, Alex Patak, and this is like about a year or so ago, he said, oh, you pay, play City Skylines, do you know Do Not Eat? I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't know, what, is that like a donut channel? Like what, what's going on? And he said, no, this guy does like socialist history historical materialism like you're into, but he does it over City Skylines, i.e. my favorite game that exists out there. I was like, no, Alex, there's no way this exists. That's custom designed for my needs. And sure enough, he wasn't lying. And so, like, yeah, over a year ago, I got into your channel, and here we are today. It's beautiful. You love to see it. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad he did that. Uh, thank you, Alex Jokes Patak. <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he's a good man. I just saw him last night, actually, and I, I told him about that. And it brought a smile to his face that he yeah. could bring us together. I um, I have to say, I uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in the master's house. I'm sitting in your yeah. dojo right now. And I must admit, I've probably, I've definitely been farther west than you on Amtrak. Ah, uh, that, that's most likely. Well, I took the train to Vancouver from Seattle once. Or, excuse me, see, yeah, Van, from Vancouver to Seattle. Okay. That's the farthest, but I was like a very small child. I don't remember it, other than, like, we got stopped at the border for a long time. I went from New York to Chicago on the overnight. Ooh, fun. And then I went from Chicago to New Orleans, and then I made it all the way from New Orleans out uh, to Arizona. Oh, that's a good trip. That, that sounds, that sounds trip. pretty good, as long as the connections work. The connections worked great. I had friends to stay in with every city. And I have to say that, like, there was a really... Did you see the really trolley article that was in? I think it was the New York Times or the Washington Post, like, a few days ago, um, talking about how train travel in the United States is like uh, it's overly subsidized and we should cut back on it. It was like Amtrak's failing long distance routes. And it's like every time I've taken long distance routes, the train was on time. I had a very pleasant experience. Nothing bad happened. In fact, when I took the Adirondack, which is notorious for being Amtrak's most delayed train, it got in like uh, an hour early, which maybe is bad because they know schedule padding. Right. But I, I, we got in early enough that like I could have taken the uh, I could have taken the Montreal to Halifax train if I had wanted to. Oh, could have go. kept going. Nice. Well, um, <laughs> I, I I think that like I think the definition that that uh, author used the the definition of like uh, a poorly run train line is based on profitability, and I think we would both agree that like Amtrak, such as it exists, it's a it was basically like a nationalized train service that arises with the, arises with the failure of uh, Conrail, right, in the 70s and 80s. It, the idea that it should run on a profit, I guess, yeah, is like it's, the, um, the problem. There was sort of a dual mandate when they started Amtrak, right, which was, you know, it had to serve a lot of people, but it also had to turn a profit. Now, these, these two ideas are contradictory, right, because, um, you know, Amtrak can't make a profit if it's serving, like, Whitefish, Montana, right, or, like, if it's going to, I don't know, Trying to think, what what's a small place that Amtrak stops in the middle of a long distance route? Like if it's going to probably somewhere in the Midwest, right? Manhattan, Kansas. Kansas. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you you can't you can't say you know well you need to do essential service and you also need to turn a profit unless of course you're talking about the post office which managed to achieve this easily but that's because right. you know they have scale. Um, right, and, and and this is like a sidebar here, but like when they really did well, there was also a banking type service too. Right there was a there's been talk about bringing back to the post office like postal banking, yes, right, which was a huge service to working class Americans, especially in small towns, that could exist again at scale. There was also an artificial mandate to pre-fund the post office's healthcare system that was introduced a couple, maybe maybe eight or nine years ago now, maybe 
maybe earlier oh, that than that. poison pill, right? The poison pill, yeah, because the post office was making too much money, so they had need to make it look like they were losing money. Uh- <laughs> Only in America, folks. Mm-hmm. Only in America. So Amtrak then is is given this dual mandate, which is completely contradictory, right? Like, yes. Uh, I think we're the obvious thing to compare the United States rail system to would be a place like Europe, uh, or even China, or Japan for that matter. Yeah. Other industrialized capitalist countries uh, that are able to run highly efficient, um, very well maintained, and quick train services to all sorts of different areas that you know are are necessarily populist and certainly like aren't going to make a profit. The United States fails in that because of what the government and the public expects of our train system, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, Japan's kind of a weird case because their trains are mostly privatized and they do make money, make money even in rural areas. Um, but certainly, like, in, in places like... Well, that's the other thing is they're starting to privatize in Europe, too, which is kind of weird because, like, there's okay, all these the quasi... Yeah, there's, like, these quasi-private corporations, like, say, Deutsche Bahn in Germany, which is, you know, they're required to provide services to some areas that they're also sort of... They're sort of privatized, but the government owns most of the stock, but then, then there's, like... It, it's complicated. I don't recall how it's organized offhand. It works, though. <laughs> it it does. It, works. it does work, mostly. Um, and then Deutsche Bahn is now trying to get its hands into the British railway system, which is an entire, um, that, that's, that, that's something I don't want to touch that. Point. I don't, I don't <laughs> think I, I would say when I said Europe, I think we can ex- fairly exclude, uh, Great Britain from the, uh, usable, accessible and efficient train world. I mean, they're trying to exclude themselves. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks Thatcher, I guess yeah. for, uh, for that one. So why are we talking about trains right now? I mean, we're not just talking about trains because, um, we're both train boys. We're not just talking about trains because Justin's uh, whole ballywick online really is uh, transportation. We're talking about trains because um, they represent, you know, not just in people's imagination, but in reality, a very uh, effective and low-cost way for working-class people to get around, you know, in the United States and Europe and elsewhere, or at least potentially in the United States. And when you look at the way that people move around in the United States, uh, certainly the way they have since, like, the post-war period, um, so much of the development of our country, so much of the history of um, how people get to where they need to be, where they live, and where they work is tied up in the political economy of transportation, of the movement of peoples. Um, And to that extent, we actually did something really fun, and we watched a 1988... Was it 1988 film? That sounds about uh, right. Robert Zemeckis film called Who Framed Roger Rabbit for this episode. I think we enjoyed it, would you say? Yes. Um, it was uh, It was fun. There were Pacific Electric red cars. There were boobs. It was well, good. Yeah, there's plenty of breasts uh, involved. <laughs> Cartoon breasts, but breasts nonetheless. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> as, you'll, as folks will see, the central conceit of this film is, is around... Uh, like basically urban uh, mass transit and uh, the ways in which that was essentially obliterated in this country uh, in the 1940s and 50s and certainly by the 1960s, completely changing the landscape of America and certainly changing the way that people lived and basically like all the bullshit that we're dealing with today with car culture and Mm -hmm. strip malls and uh, all the things that kind of represent maybe the the worst of what uh, American uh, culture has produced. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, we watched this, uh, we watched this um, film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and of course, uh, one of the subplots is sort of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the villain of the story, Judge Doom, 
controls Cloverleaf Industries, and he buys up the red cars uh, so, you know, he can dismantle public transportation and then, you know, take over Toontown um, and um, demolish it for his freeway. And this is not too far off from reality, right? Right. I mean, you sort of see this guy as an amalgam of two separate forces that were working at the same time, right? Sort of in tandem, which is sort of uh, the Interstate Highway Act, which was handcrafted by Robert Moses, like it, across the country, like Robert Moses had his hands in pretty much every urban freeway project that existed. Um, he was a consultant on most of them. I mean, his work is most famous in New York City, but like everywhere else it was too. But then there was also this uh, company called National City Lines. Mm. Which, Sounds nefarious. Which was... Um, it was a sort of um, it, it was a company put together by General Motors, Firestone Tires, and Standard Oil. Exactly the type of people you would want to be running a public uh, transit system. <laughs> yes, yes, and they um, they sort of went in and they started buying up municipal trolley uh, corporations across America. You know, your 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 sort of your street railways, your inner urban lines, your. Your, your public transit systems in general, they would buy them up. They would rip up the tracks. They'd put buses on the tracks instead. So this was a little bit better initially. Like, we got to remember, a lot of these trolleys were pretty old and rickety, and they were held up by traffic, and the buses could go around. But overall, like, service sort of declined. And National City Lines, of course, um, is uh, – it, it was – you know, they sort of rebrand as the local company. You know, they, they, you didn't always know it was National City Lines that was buying up the place. Um, but uh, they, they, they had the same strategy everywhere. Um, and, you know, the very few systems that survived either were systems like Philadelphia, which I believe did get hit by National City Lines at some point. But because we had a trolley tunnel, they couldn't justify getting rid of the trolleys. Or... Um, well, that was really good. You needed dedicated trolley infrastructure to keep trolleys. I Just mean, Philly, huh? Well, San Francisco, San Francisco New Orleans. Cars, yeah. um, who else still has them? Cleveland, uh, Boston. Um, New York City held out until the 50s. That was just the one trolley on the Queensboro Bridge. Oh, nice. Our favorite bridge, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the Queensboro. And, uh, it's a good-looking bridge. It's a beautiful bridge. It's a charming uh, um handsome bridge let's mm -hmm. say it's a very handsome bridge and uh i highly resent that it's now named the ed koch bridge oh my god uh, complete fucking disaster that neoliberal scumbag but i'm digressing um so <laughs> the it, it wasn't merely that that urban uh transit systems declined out of some quote-unquote natural sort of organic death yeah there was an extra sort of push to destroy them uh, in the 1940s and 50s through this corporate consolidation of that industry and yeah. the slow dismantlement of it. Yeah, I mean, you you started really like these companies wanted to come together. You know, they they're gonna you know buy buses built by General Motors, riding on Firestone tires, tires of course consumable, um, and running on Standard Oil. Right. So they can sell cities, all this stuff, because, of course, they're still subsidized by the city at this point because they had gone past uh, sort of um, the, 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 the regulated fares portion of public transportation, where a lot of our trolley lines and interurban lines were nearly like the, since fares were regulated by the city they and they weren't raised frequently, they sort of. They started running into financial issues. I know, like, talking about, like, regulating fares is probably not well, <laughs> not the I mean, most can, leftist thing. But, <laughs> but no, we can get back to the 1970s in New York City when the famous nickel fare mm -hmm. uh, still existed. 
um, in, in our transit system in New York. And um, it was incredibly cheap for working class people to get around New York City. But at the same time, there wasn't the revenue or the kind of, uh, I don't know, public uh, attempt or, or public policy to maintain those subways and keep them going. And so yeah. like after that kind of fair regime ended, the prices would start going all up and up and up. But I'm digressing. Yeah. I'm getting a bit ahead of ourselves. What is it, like 375 now? Yeah, it's uh, 275. It's still, it's still pretty bad. That's I've appalling. seen it raise about, I don't know, like 10, 15 times in the last 20 years. So here we are now, having just watched a, um, a real blockbuster hit for 1988 called uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I don't know h- how often um, people watch this movie nowadays, but... I remember going to see this, and I'm dating myself now, seeing this in the theaters with my father mm-hmm. uh, way back in the 80s there. It was a, uh, it was a real hit, and mm-hmm. uh, I think we saw the reason why, right? It was pretty entertaining, and it was pretty, I don't know, like germane to our interests. <laughs> no, it, was a, it was a pretty, it was, it was a good movie. I enjoyed that a lot because I like cartoons. I like trolleys. Um, I like 1947 Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I like boobs, yep. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 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 let's get to like the the kind of aesthetics of this film, right? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned cartoons. For people who don't know, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was a pretty ballsy move, I have to say, for a director and a company to you know produce. It was a uh, half cartoon, like ha- half live action movie that takes place in Los Angeles in 1947. Uh, that kind of represents almost like. The highest technology, because we're talking in the 80s, right before CGI comes around, right? They yeah. literally like animated cartoons into the fucking movie alongside, like, alongside Bob Hoskins and alongside uh, Christopher Lloyd and alongside, well, she's part of it, but alongside a very, very busty uh, Jessica Rabbit, mm-hmm. who is a, uh, quite, quite the character uh, in this film, uh, playing the kind of paramour. So, Justin... Uh, Kind of bring people through the the basis of the plot, right? It's kind of a noir type thriller. Right? It is kind of a noir type thriller. So there's like, um, so there's uh, where where do we start? So there's um, what's his name? Last name's Valiant. Uh, Eddie Eddie Valiant. Eddie Valiant runs seems to be a private detective agency, right? And he hates he hates the tunes, right? The tunes killed his brother. The his brother killed. was killed by a tune. Yeah, his t- uh, a tune killed his brother by dropping a piano on him, <laughs> as a tune does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So stereotypical, but yeah. And then there's um, then there's Roger Rabbit, who's you know he's he works he works as a tune creating cartoons, which I guess is the only probably the only job available for tunes. <laughs> now that you think about it, like there's very few other jobs they could do. I mean, we saw that there's like you could be a bouncer. And then oh, you yeah. could be like a gangster street thug weasel tune as you well. Could, I think you, that's the only industries that are open to You tunes. could be a penguin waiter as well. Yes, that's yeah. right. Basically, they're like a hyper-exploited class within uh, the society, this alternate yeah. world, right? I kind of want a penguin waiter, though. That sounds great, though. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I like penguins. I think they're cute. <laughs> they are great. I yeah. mean, uh, there was that whole um, climate change uh cartoon that went around where the polar bears and the anyways i'm digressing yeah. i'm doing twitter stuff but anyway all right so um what, what's going on here so um uh roger rabbit who is a cartoon uh screws up doing a cartoon because they wanted him to do stars when he gets hit on the head with a refrigerator as opposed to doing i think he did uh birds birds yeah, yeah. birds circling around his head after he got hit on the head with a refrigerator so um the uh the the uh the, what's his name? The director or the guy in charge of Maroon Cartoons. Maroon Cartoons. 
What a maroon. What a maroon, yeah. <laughs> Says uh, uh, to, to Eddie Valiant, he's like, all right, can, can he, he, what is it? Roger Rabbit's worried about his wife, who he thinks is. He's worried about his wife. Yeah. Jessica Rabbit. Jessica Rabbit, yes. Who, um, you know, is, it, he, he thinks that, like, she's doing some hokey pokey, right? So, um, what's his face? Maroon Cartoons guy. Uh, decide, the owner of the studio. Yeah. Owner of the studio. It says, um, "All right, go, 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 try and get some dirt on um, on Roger Rabbit's wife." I, I feel like this is exacerbating the situation, um, <laughs> <laughs> which he does. So he goes into like the speakeasy, right, where yeah. where they're doing like some kind of cartoon show, but no cartoons are allowed to 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 watch the show, right? And, yeah, and the the, the the racial dynamics of this are really interesting, right? Because it's not merely that they're cartoons and mm-hmm. it's not, they do in this alternative world, right? I don't know if it's like that, um, that sci-fi book slash film annihilation where like a separate world comes in and like, ble- like bleeds into the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, or whether it's like the China Mayville, uh, sci-fi thriller, uh, noir thriller, the city in the city where you have like two alternate realities that exist on the same plane. But somehow, in this world, in this alternate 1947, there are just like inexplicably cartoons living alongside human beings. And there's like all sorts of phenotype differences between these cartoons and regular human beings. They interact with one another. They're in fact racist towards the tunes, right? There's yes. a strong racial dynamic here because the tunes, like, they can act and they could be in, you know, various like movie products. But, um, they're too silly to like live like a normal life. They're always like dropping fucking uh, I don't know safes on one another. Yeah. And they're constantly like throwing acme um, holes into the wall and then like jumping into them. Yeah. They're constantly opening up boxes of like squeaky shoes that just jump around and like cause all sorts of antics. So it's a very very bizarre world that they've managed to craft that like we enter into and I think we are fully immersed in this sort of tune slash human environment and world. It's it's intense, man. It's yeah. Really intense. So they walk, he walks into the speakeasy and they're doing like the they're doing like the dueling pianos between Daffy Duck and Donald Duck. All the ducks, man. They got one thing that we kept commenting on during this yeah. is the amount of licensing that went into this. Oh yeah. Because it combines like the Disney universe with the Warner universe. Yes. So you have all the cartoons that you remember as a kid, all the classics, all amalgamated, all coming together at once. Um, just like uh, it must have cost tens of millions of dollars just to get the license. It's interesting because in this in this universe, canonically Disney exists because like the the maroon cartoons guy got um got Dumbo on loan. Right. Yeah. And he said uh, we only have to pay him peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> he works for peanuts. <laughs> works yeah. For peanuts. Oh man, there were so many like uh, puns and like double entendres in this film and like yeah. triple entendres and like yeah. quadruple entendres. It uh, they really went for it. Is that sort of like uh, corny, um, sort of like uh, dad humor? Mm-hmm. You know, yes, that was in it. yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why this was such a hit is because uh, similar to like the original Looney Tunes, you could be an adult and there was like sexy boob humor in it. Yes, but there was also like you know, funny, dumb, like slapstick kid stuff at yeah. the same time happening all throughout. Yes. So yeah. So, so speaking of sexy boob humor, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jessica Rabbit, Jack, folks. yeah, Jessica Rabbit, you know, walks out in the speakeasy, right, doing uh, uh, 
doing the um you know like the the sort of 1940s like sexy sultry. woman sultry yeah. doing uh <laughs> singing the song right and of course uh mr acme's there head uh, of the acme corporation he's out here you may know acme from uh you know roadrunner and uh yeah. all that they're like the they're basically like the monopoly on wacky gags mm -hmm. right there was such combination and concentration of capital in this world that there's one corporation for gags pretty much yeah. i mean i mean out here in philadelphia they only have the grocery stores thank god <laughs> that's not acme that's the acme <laughs> so anyway mr acme is out here for the hentai show which temporarily of course has western animation because in 1947 all the japanese cartoons are interned um, <laughs> that's right <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll put a clip of uh, Jessica Rabbit fully robed, um, you know, maybe in the show art. But uh, I do remember, uh, this was from, again, back when I was a kid, that there was a scandal because, you know how Disney does this a lot. You know how there, there'll be like one actual uh whatchamacallit like piece of film yeah shot i don't know what you call it, like when the film goes by there was like a frame yes thank you there was one frame apparently that they had inserted into the movie and of course it goes by so fast you couldn't see it when you watched it of jessica rabbit completely nude with all of her assets to show and uh it actually caused a scandal at the time because people found that frame in the film and it was the animators like playing a little prank by uh showing the the real hentai that real shit that you only get on like uh you know hn oh my yeah but uh we won't put that in the show notes that's a little a little risque so so anyway here's the time code <laughs> andy punched that in <laughs> So the hentai, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, we're going to have to take a break for about five minutes. Uh, we'll be back. I'll be in my bunk. <laughs> now we're going to try to find that for you. <laughs> so the... Um, uh, okay, so the gimmick here is that, like, uh, Mr. Agme is, of course, way into Western hentai, goes to visit uh, Jessica Rabbit in her um, uh, room, uh, and, and they play patty cake. Literally, literally patty cake. Yeah, and, and, and uh, Eddie Valiant gets pictures of that, and then, and then they use that to tell um, Roger Rabbit that, um, oh, your wife's cheating on you. She's playing patty cake with Mr. Acme. And then, uh, and then and of course, um, Roger Rabbit is distraught, and, you know, he goes, he, they give him some liquor, and he, like, shoots up the wall, and right. then, like, you know, he goes into, like, this sort of drunken, maniacal state, and then the next day, Mr. Acme is found dead. Dead. Someone dropped a safe on him. Typical noir, right? Yeah. You've all seen your famous uh, or read your famous noir novels. Somebody always gets a safe or piano dropped in their head. Or an yeah. anvil for yeah. that matter. Or an anvil, yeah. yeah. Very much the case. It, There's not a single anvil being dropped on anyone in this film. There was a, when they went to Toontown, which is yep. a psychedelic... Uh, Penelope of sights and sounds. Uh, there was a sign that said "danger, falling anvils." Yes. So that was their one sort of bow to like classic Looney Tune shit, uh, amongst like tons and tons of references to classic uh, Looney Tune stuff. So anyway. Yeah. So uh, anyways, uh, what happens here? Uh, so um, you know, we, we we see the scene of the crime where. Um, Acme's had a safe dropped on his head and he's like in, he's like on a stretcher in a sheet and then like, 
Eddie Valiant has like uh, dissolved into an alcoholic haze. And the next day, like the lieutenant from the police department wakes him up and says, hey, look what you've done. You made you made Roger Rabbit go crazy and fucking murder Mr. Acme. Right. And then and then we meet uh, Judge Doom, who's apparently like bought the election and tuned down on the platform of I'm going to like I'm going to murder all of you, <laughs> but also I'm going to lower property taxes. <laughs> yeah. So it's incredible. So it's Christopher Lloyd, right? Coming like hot, hot on the tails of um his starring, I think, in, in Back to the Future 1 and 2, also Robert Zemeckis films, right? Yeah. Christopher Lloyd, who looks like, we thought he was Slugworth, the actor who played Yeah, Slugworth. I, was, I thought this was uh, Slugworth. With, uh, Mick, uh, Willy, Willy Wonka. Wonka yeah. First, but uh, no, it turns out. The first it's, uh, one, the good one. The good one, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, there was another one. I don't even want to think about that. Um, yeah, so Christopher Lloyd plays a very, very good uh, and evil uh, Judge Doom. Yes. And. Uh, yeah, the conceit here is that somehow the Toons voted him in to become their judge. Uh, yeah, even though he has this bizarre, toxic mix of like hydro, fluoro, benzene. It was like, um, uh, it was the the dip. The, the dip. dip. They call uh, it the dip. The dip, courtesy of Copenhagen. Uh, <laughs> no, the dip was uh, turpentine, acetone, and benzene. Boom, you nailed it. Now, yeah. uh, turpentine, I don't know much about. Acetone, fine. You know, wash your hands in it. It's yeah. great. Nail polish. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then benzene, oh boy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's not too good for the health, right? That'll that that if you if you listen to the latest episode of Well, there's your problem podcast where we talk about Lacanac Antique, they had to demolish the entire town because of benzene contamination, and uh, investigators had to work in fifteen minute shifts so they didn't get cancer from cancer, the benzene. Cancer, folks, cancer. Yeah. It's not good. It's the bad part of crude oil. Um, there you go. The uh, the reason why Judge Doom is creating this dip is because, and I think this was really fucking clever, is that. You know, we all see what happens to tunes all the time. They run into walls, they fall off cliffs, they have anvils dropped on their head. That you cannot kill a tune through kill normal them, yeah. means. The only way that you can actually kill one of these walking, talking cartoon people in this world is by this method that uh, Judge Doom creates, which is this toxic mix that if it gets on their skin, it will kill them. Of course, we couldn't help but notice every time a human human being got this on them that. While they may not die immediately, they will die in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna. This is a little bit. This is probably uh, one of the worst chemicals you could expose yourself to. I mean, you know, you short of like standing in a nuclear reactor, like. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned um, that uh, there's a leaded gasoline connection with the benzene. There is. Uh, benzene is a chemical which can easily uh, raise octane ratings in gasoline. Now, uh, octane is. It's complicated. But one of the things we used after we used benzene was tetraethyl lead because it was safer. Oops. Now, tetraethyl lead is, of course, what what makes leaded gasoline, right? Right. And, of course, now we use alkylation units, which use hydrogen fluoride, which is that chemical that melts you from the inside out, which, again, is safer than tetraethyl lead. Oil industry is bad news, folks. <laughs> it's all a matter of degrees when it comes to safe. <laughs> it's gotten it's not safer, safer, not by huge leaps and bounds, but by tiny increments. And for the people who don't 
uh, know Justin's history. He's also a civil engineer, folks. So uh, yeah. he's not talking out of his ass when he talks about the properties of, uh, of benzene or when he talks yeah. about capitalism. For that I'm, I'm the civil engineer. That's why I know about chemical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, the, so the dip, right? What's yeah. going on with Judge, uh, judge Doom and the, and the dip? Well, as a judge, he's able to perform extrajudicial executions <laughs> in front of police officers, he apparently. He was voted in to do that. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, this is what the tunes want, is for him to just fucking murder, like, living beings in front of, in front of God and everyone. <laughs> It literally happens all the time. That's the There's most no morality the, in this world. I know. This, this is like one of the most unbelievable parts of the film. Yeah. I don't know what Cinema Sins said about this because <laughs> I was going to watch the Cinema Sins about this. Did uh, he really do one? Uh, yeah, he did. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't want to. I'm going to need to watch it at some point. Well, we're going to one up them with uh, with this episode. But Fuck like. You Cinema Sins. Yeah, exactly. But like, you know, he's just murdering like people, like in front right. of other people. Yeah. And, like police officers and shit. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is fine. You well, can do that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but what you're neglecting to mention is that uh, because of the racial element of uh, tuneness, yeah, uh, they are considered lesser than the actual live-action human beings in this world. This is like, true. There is deep prejudice towards these tunes, not just because they're like wacky and they can't stop like cracking up when you play uh, shaving a haircut; they just completely lose their stuff. But you know, they also live in their own separate ghetto, as yes. you mentioned, and uh, they're basically used as like an underclass yeah. <clears throat> for Hollywood and ultimately for Acme, even as consumers. You know, the only thing that they're good for is, uh, I don't know, buying like sticks of dynamite and blowing each other up all the time. It's 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 really unfair. And uh, I think they they really show this um, the trials and tribulations of this tune underclass in the film. And this is 1947. You could buy a stick of dynamite at the hardware store. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually, you're not wrong. <laughs> Quarter sticks of dynamite, but still sticks. Of, you could buy four of them. <laughs> four M80s. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we've got the dip. We've got uh, Judge. I keep wanting to say Judge Dredd, but that's another. That's a really bad movie. Yeah. But um, so like moving the plot forward, um, what happens next, right? So we have the detective. Yeah. He is. Um, he finds pictures of Jessica Rabbit playing literal patty cake with a guy. Yeah. Roger Rabbit is freaking out because he finds his wife has uh, cheated on him, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what what's happening now with uh, with Judge Doom and this that and the other? What, what's going on? So, like, um, Roger Rabbit turns out in Eddie Valiant's office, and, like, Eddie Valiant's pissed off because Toon murdered his brother with the piano. Um, that would get under your skin. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it was a grand piano or is it an upright piano. It was enough to crush him, man. Well, you know, both of those could do it. Yeah. Grand piano might stab you, like, real bad, yeah, though. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so... It's the worst way to die. So, anyway, the, um, uh, where were we going with this? So, um, and then there's like a whole gag sequence where like they're trying to find the, the weasels come in the weasels are like mobsters and yeah. they come, trying to find Roger Rabbit and Roger Rabbit's handcuffing himself to Eddie Valiant. So he has to hide him in the sink and stuff like that. <coughs> and then, uh, and then, um, and of course, um, Roger Rabbit has, uh, decided the way to get back, uh, Jessica Rabbit is to write a love letter on a piece of paper he found in Acme's pocket, mm -hmm. uh, which was a blank piece of paper. And I guess this is uh, a major plot point is that apparently we, we find out shortly afterwards that Mr. Acme owned Toontown. Right. Outright. Yeah. Yeah. He just, wasn't just a monopolist. He was also like the largest. He was the biggest landlord in Los Angeles. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's like very, very kind of of our times, right? Yeah, rivaled only by the Los Angeles Housing Authority, I'm sure. <laughs> right. And um, largest and worst landlord in every city is the Public Housing Authority. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> that and your and the cops, but we'll yeah, get to that true. later. Yeah. So, um, uh, apparently, um, uh, we find out from another tune that Acme willed uh, Toontown to um, uh, the tunes after he died. Which is a very democratic gesture for the, by this capitalist, right? Yes, exactly. Well, once I'm dead and you can no longer extract uh, rent from you all, <laughs> you can have it. That's fine. <laughs> in this in this world too, because it's a topsy turvy world, the uh, rentier class, when they you know pass away, just simply gives it over to the people to create some sort of like syndicalist commune or like some sort of uh, land trust that the people can democratically run that's probably why they voted for judge doom yes because he was going to keep the property taxes low <laughs> right. once they owned their own houses they're like he might want to genocide us you know out of his abiding hatred for tunes i might be the one who doesn't money. get genocide <laughs> right. and if i do my property taxes will go down by ten thousand dollars a year yeah it's a risk <laughs> worth taking <laughs> They say he bought the. They say they say in the film he bought the election. I'm sure you could you could bring you could get through a policy plan that involved a genocide in the tunes, and you know they'd still vote for it. At least <laughs> at least enough would vote for him that uh, if they had to steal the election, you know they could make it plausible. They make right? plausible deniability. Like thirty to forty percent of like the land owning petty bourgeoisie like would vote for genocide if their property taxes would go go down, and there wasn't a hundred percent possibility that they would get killed mm -hmm. by the dip. So that's plausible. We yes. buy that one. All right, so yeah, where were we? We were in a uh, a bar. Yeah. Eddie Valiant and uh, Roger Rabbit are in a bar, and they find out a very important forward-moving plot point. Um, yeah, they find out in the bar that uh, a company called Cloverleaf Industries has bought the Pacific Electric uh, rail system. Uh, keep in mind, the Pacific Electric Railroad was real. Uh, very little else in this film actually is. Was they it were, a real? It was a real trolley system. Yeah, the Pacific yeah. Electric, one hundred percent real. Okay. Um, so the um, uh, so they're in this bar across from a major Pacific Electric station, which is for some reason Pacific Electric themed, which seems <laughs> odd to me. Because when you want to get off work and just be at a bar that's themed around that, that your... just has your company's logo all <laughs> yeah. over it. Yeah, so this is relaxing. apparently this is where the conductors go, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the the motormen, not engineers, it's in urban. They're motormen. Okay, um, okay. You know, and they go they go across the street and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here surrounded by a company memorabilia, <laughs> which wouldn't you know be memorabilia in the 1980s when this was released, but not at the time. <laughs> well. And it's like a it's like a company town, but a bar. Mm -hmm. Like it's not even like I go to a lot of bars that are like union bars, you know, like my union or my local, like they represent. And there's like you know stickers and like you know yeah. sort of you know signs and placards all over the place. But this is like just for the company. It's a real kind of peasant surf mindset uh, at Pacific Electric Bar. Apparently, yeah. I mean, I I I mean, now we look back and say, well, we'd love to have the Pacific Electric back, but at the time, it's kind of like, well, we have it. Here's all. Here, probably everyone's thinking about their grievances with the Pacific Electric. <laughs> it's like celebrating like the MTA. It's like the MTA bar. If you went to a bar and it just had like not even like cool subway signs and like old memorabilia, just like you know shit that said like Metropolitan Transit Authority. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. Too fun. Even if you work there. <laughs> so they especially, find, if you work especially there. if you work there. So they find out now that uh, this beloved in this world uh, transit company has yeah. been bought and in fact not only bought but there are layoffs we see a conductor 
who's like crestfallen because he just lost his job due to downsizing. Yeah. Crestfallen and passed out drunk. <laughs> his hat fell off. That's how passed out drunk he was. I mean, we've all been there, right? Yeah. So, uh, and then they, the, the Eddie Valiant and the bartender, who, who was his girlfriend as well at some point in the past, they have to hide Roger Rabbit in the, um, in the back room, which was, you know, had like Prohibition era, like features for storing liquor, which is, of course, illegal at the time in Prohibition, not in 1947. Liquor was very much legal. Oh, yeah. Because we're on the cusp of the three martini lunch era. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, John F. Kennedy. And there was like a running theme through this, too, that we kept noticing was um, uh, that kind of um, licentiousness of the period where you had uh, just people constantly drinking to the extent that one guy had a whiskey holster. Yeah, uh, inside of his jacket, which was very impressive. That was uh, that, that was Eddie Valiant. Yeah, Eddie and Valiant. Yeah, that, this that was is. this was the high point of drinking technology. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention too, like at one point he's uh, he's like stealing a ride on a trolley, and some kids like give him a bunch of cigarettes. Some like twelve year olds like here, have a bunch of cigarettes. It's probably it's- flavored. <laughs> they were jewels. That yeah. was the early equivalent of jewels. You know, they're mango cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we're pro vape here. Yeah, but, you know. The golden age of American bikes. <laughs> oh God. Are, are they gonna look back at like the time when they sold uh mango and um like popcorn flavored jewel as like the golden age of vaping? That's Probably. depressing. Yeah. <laughs> As New York is about to ban flavored uh, vapes. Oh, no. my God. <laughs> the golden age of vaping. Let people have nice things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Seriously. I say as I puff on my electronic mm-hmm. cigarette. All right, so... Um, Elected yeah. official Judge Doom shows up at the bar, says he's looking for a murderer, who is, of course, Roger Rabbit, who's hidden in the back room, and he proceeds to smash up the place because apparently he has that right as a judge. He was elected to do so. He's elected to do so. He has, he, he has a remark... He is above the law, really, <laughs> in this entire film. He's, um, he he d- just does shit that like we would not accept in society. Not at all. It's like, you, you imagine if like, if Mary Kenny walked into my house right now, I'd be like, get the fuck out. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't like world, give him deference <laughs> to like, I don't know, murder someone in my house. In this world, in this world, your, your mayor, the mayor of Philadelphia would walk into your house, spill a bunch of cancer causing chemicals on the ground and just like crush Liam's head with like a vice or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Fine. And I'd be like, well, that's his right as an elected <laughs> official to do that. That's yeah. the people's will. Yeah, this is the will of the people of Toontown to keep their property taxes low. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a dark world. It's very noir, though, right? Because, like, one, I mean, one reference that kind of happens a few times in the film is to Chinatown. Of course, maybe the most famous cinematic noir representation of Los Angeles uh, in film history. Right, and in that you have like a very strong um, capitalist elite. Uh, I forget what the the main guy's name is who like gets all the orange grows or whatever. Right, like noir is about the, this sort of rotten, corrupted, all-encompassing power that that combines the political and the economic at the same time. So in a sense, like Judge Doom is that character in this film. Right, he's a very noir sort of character, acting with impunity. Um, and also like acting not just in some sort of like evil uh, kind of um, 
whatchamacallit, like uh, James Bond type villain way, but very much in a kind of crass and materialist way. He's not just killing tunes because he enjoys the act of killing, although he does. Yes. He's doing it for his own material interests. Yes. So, uh, yeah, where were we? Right, yeah, he, he was just about to kill Roger Rabbit in a bar. Yeah. Um, uh, Eddie saves him by force-feeding him liquor, um, you know, because, again, it's the 1940s. Um, yeah, that's how you saved everybody. Then. That's that how was really the miracle cure. Al- alcohol was only the solution to the world's problems, <laughs> not the cause of at this point. A simpler time. <laughs> a simpler time, yes. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he feeds Roger Rabbit some booze, and Roger Rabbit freaks out and breaks from the clutches of... Turns uh, into a giant steam whistle. That's right. Yeah. So many gags in this film. Yes. So many fucking gags. It's like it was a cartoon. Right. (laughs) (laughs) At least a half cartoon, anyways. (laughs) So, um, yeah, the... uh, It all ends in in a a very triumphant scene uh, in a... uh, in a warehouse. A in the very, Acme warehouse. In the Acme yes. warehouse. That's right. The famous Acme warehouse. And uh, give us the denouement of uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right. What's the actual plan that Judge Doom has? And how does this tie into, in fact, the real history, not just of Pacifica Electric, but the entire sort of transit development of the United States uh, in this period? So uh, the, 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 the 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 whatever the fuck it, I learned it from fucking a uh, series of unfortunate events. Uh, denouement. Yeah, the denouement, yes. I don't speak, I barely speak English. How are you expecting me to speak French? <laughs> We're challenging you here on the yeah. Antifada. So, so the, uh, uh, what had happened was uh, <laughs> what had happened, the denouement <laughs> <laughs> We're drinking. So, folks. so, so they, uh, <laughs> they, um, uh, okay. So uh, after, like, we get some plot points that put Jessica Rabbit into more suspicion. We find out, oh, uh, she was framed. Roger Rabbit was framed. It was Judge Doom the whole fucking time. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Wow. Yeah. It was wow. Judge Doom. Believe it or not, the genocidal judge who acts with impunity. As a matter of fact, it. the most evil-looking guy in the film <laughs> did all the bad things. <laughs> Surprise. I I never would have expected it. Still, folks, it's a it's a good movie. Okay? It is a good it movie. Good. Yeah, you don't expect it, but you still enjoy it when it happens. So so um 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 all right, what's going on here? So Judge Doom's plan is he got this big ridiculous trunk uh truck not a trunk a truck <laughs> a truck with this absurd like vat of just incredibly toxic chemicals on the back. So the much dip. dip. Yeah. So much dip, yeah. Copenhagen, Grizzly. Um, <laughs> skull. Skull, yeah. yeah. Even a little bit of snus yeah. thrown in there for good measure. Mm-hmm. Benzene snus. Benzene snus, yeah. flavor. Well, you know, it, it turns out, like, mouth cancer isn't that common, but if you put benzene in there, you'll <laughs> definitely get it. <laughs> Man, I should really switch flavors. <laughs> I don't know, it started with a B. I like that letter. Yeah. <laughs> Benzene, delicious. Mm. I like the makes, chemical structure. It's this nice hexagon. Yeah. <laughs> makes mouths happy. Okay. <laughs> so he's got like a, a, a like a genocide truck for tunes. Yeah, he's got the genocide truck for for cartoons. <laughs> and he's like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna a we're gonna he does the classic villain mistake where he's got the hero like cornered. Yeah. Right. And he's like, no, let him watch his friends die because he got Jessica Rabbit and Roger Rabbit like tied up. 
you know, and he's like, let, let him watch his tuned friends die, then shoot him. Right. So then they, they power up the genocide truck with the big water cannon that spews this dip that kills tunes and also kills humans after three or four <laughs> years. Um, <laughs> just by being in proximity. And um, so they, they try and spray him, and then there's like, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that happens with like cartoon shit because yeah. it's a cartoon movie. Um, and uh, anyway, the Judge Doom turns out to be a cartoon, a self-hating cartoon. Yes. Uh, after he gets cartoon. run over by a steamroller. And he's a... So this is another very interesting dynamic is the, the main enemy who wants to kill the tunes ends up being a tune himself, a self-hating tune. And his henchmen, these weasels, all right, are basically like capos, right? They are like tunes who uh, are complicit in this potential genocide of other tunes. Mm-hmm. So there is a real like aspect of tune on tune violence and tune on tune hatred within that. And you literally hate to see it. Mm-hmm. You just hate to see it. But in the end, uh, our hero, Jessica Rabbit and his bucks I'm sorry, Roger Rabbit and his yeah. buxom partner, Jessica Rabbit, do succeed, but not before Judge Doom reveals his master plan. Why did he do all this? Again, it's not out of irrational hatred or even self-hatred for that matter. Mm-hmm. He does it for a vision, a vision of the future. Is it yeah. a beautiful vision? No. Do we like it? We sure don't. But it is a compelling vision of what not just Los Angeles, but the rest of America could look like. Justin, go ahead. Give us what is Judge Doom's vision. So Judge Doom, as it turns out, was the guy who bought up the Pacific Electric in this um, in this story, and he uh, he runs an outfit called Cloverleaf Industries. Cloverleaf here referring, of course, to a highway called Cloverleaf. Right. He was going to build this thing that no one ever heard about before, called uh, uh, a highway, a right? freeway, a freeway. Yes, because right, right. uh, of course parkways would probably be fairly common at this point. Um, so and the idea being that like, okay, I'm going to buy, I'm going to acquire Toontown at auction. I'm going to run a freeway straight through it, and then I'm going to sell off land development rights in the adjacent area. And, you know, we're going to get, like, fast food restaurants. We're going to get strip malls. We're going to get oh, yeah. um, uh, car dealerships, stores. tire stores. Yeah, all, all kinds of shit. It's going to be great. Billboards, yeah. And, of course, he wants to ruin the Pacific Electric outlets over here. Thanks. <laughs> Don't edit that out. Leave that in. I'm plugging my jewel. Okay, go we on. We live in the stupid future where you got to charge your cigarette. <laughs> And yet they say it was the golden age. <laughs> okay, so this this uh, this Robert Moses vision yeah. of the future uh, yeah. is, you know, it's an allegory, and it's a very kind of on the nose allegory for the dark forces at work. In this case, the capitalist forces at work, who are destroying, you know, an older and mature mm-hmm. public transit system existing in not just Los Angeles, but as you mentioned before, many metropolitan areas uh in the united states almost everywhere and like out in the country uh you know in the middle of nowhere you'd find you know given any like um given any area in the united states there would be like the nowhere and east armpit inner urban railroad Um, (laughs) right and it was really real and uh almost everybody used it who needed to get around these areas yeah basically i mean farmer brown could just you know walk down to the tracks and flag down the interurban car and say i need to get into town and they'd bring him there if he paid the fare (laughs) and imagine that compared to today uh where in large swaths of the country probably geographically most of the country if you do not have a car you're basically socially isolated and uh you know economically immiserated right not being able to 
have this freedom of movement that's very much constrained by the necessities of car ownership. Yes. So this vision, interestingly, again, in 1988, when this film comes out, this uh, judge-doomed vision, and for the rest of this episode, we, we will be call, calling uh, Robert Moses Judge Doom. Uh, in this vision of the world, um, you know, it was already seen at this point as a dark vision, right? Yeah. In the 80s, it's seen as like this nefarious plot on the part of corporations to take away a, a beloved institution, you know, which is this kind of semi-small-d democratic uh, transit system, right, that anybody can use. And um, so, in a sense, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like a very kind of poignant and I think like historically, historically accurate presentation, as much as it's in like allegorical form, of the sort of changes that take place in this country in the post-war era with the destruction of a former way of movement and way of life and the bringing in of this sort of car culture that um, you know it is essentially this like capitalist plot that is based on profit and based on greed and ends up like being the death knell of this old form of community in the United States. Oh yes, and and it's um it it's it's interesting how it's like it it's a combination of government and also private forces that take it down. Like in the in the in the movie, it's simplified. It's like well, there's this one evil guy right. who wants to build freeways, which are bad. Which of course is made in the '80s. Like you know, we're, we, at this point, we'd realized uh, freeways, or at least some people have realized. Oh yeah, this freeway situation is not very good. Um, you can keep yeah. adding all the traffic lanes you want, but it's not going to solve the traffic yeah, problem. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that like you you don't like you don't solve the traffic problem by adding more lanes. You solve the traffic problem by reducing the amount of cars. There you go. <laughs> so even by the '80s, some people had clued into this. Yeah, and I mean, it's not, it, it wasn't really, it didn't really enter the mainstream discourse until really James Howard Kunstler published the uh, Geography of Nowhere. Um, and of course, James, Car James Howard Kunstler is now a crazy, uh, never Trump conservative man. But cool. <laughs> that's all we needed was a uh, David Frum, but for like anti car stuff. Uh, J uh, uh, Paul Joseph Watson likes to cite him a lot. Oh, that sucks. I know. Wow. Right? <laughs> okay. Uh, Damn. The Geography of Nowhere, a very good book, highly recommended. I do not recommend any of his other work. <laughs> and also, uh, Justin Rosniak, a.k.a. Do Not Eat One, does not recommend Paul Joseph Watson, folks. That is not on his yeah, he probably recommended should, probably should not list. should not listen to Paul Joseph Watson because it's just unpleasant to listen to. Like, you ever watch it? Something weird about his face, too. It's because it's so fucking big on the screen, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, why, why would you show that much of your face? Right, I mean, it's it's like he's he's there. He's like in front of a map, that, a map of the world that like says Rhodesia on it. Does and it really? It doesn't, but it'd be well, funnier if it did. <laughs> Folks who don't know the reference for that, Rhodesia was the name of the white supremacist uh, post-colonial nation that existed in Africa. Uh, one which, as a white supremacist country in Africa, Paul Joseph Watson probably would stand if he was able to get a uh, map with uh, that country on I'm it. I'm surprised he doesn't get, like, a map that just shows the British Empire. <laughs> He's got that, like, behind the map, like, the map that he usually shows on his videos, he peels it back, and it's just, like, a, <laughs> a map where, like, of, like, the Nazis take over the entire world. The sun world. never so, sets on the British Nazi Empire. That's it, that's <laughs> it. So, yeah, like, um, this idea of the car, this idea of um, this sort of uh, developmental spree that happens, um out of like Robert Moses' New York City in the 1930s and 40s, 
it uh, completely changes the face of the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, you basically see the annihilation of, you know, traditional modes of settlement, right? Which were you live close to where you work. Um, commuting is not really something we, we think about too much um, as, as like an invented thing, right? Um, but it used to be like most people's commutes were like five minutes, right? right? You know, you walked over to the plant that you live near, you walked downstairs to your shop or something like that. Maybe you had a 10 or 15 minute walk. At most, you took the omnibus. Yeah, you took the you took the little omnibus, or you, maybe you took the L, or you took the subway, or you know you took a trolley car. It wasn't like a long commute. But then, of course, once we start to introduce the car, we we introduce like major distances that we have to cover, and we build infrastructure to facilitate this. And gradually, slowly, we start to um, immiserate ourselves through the infrastructure we build for perceived convenience. Yeah, and that's um, in, a, in a more sort of like philosophic slash, you know, sort of political economy sense. It's this real sort of uh, domination of, of our time. By our, I mean like the working class, but just broadly uh, Americans at this point. Um, we are tied to commutes. You know, yes. we are tied to, uh, you know, even going to the supermarket, we're tied to a sort of regime where more and more of our time is spent up, not, you know, obviously like enjoying moving around uh, our particular town, our particular area, but being compelled more and more to spend minutes and hours, um, you know, engaged in transportation by automobile. And as you said, I think importantly, you know, when you talk about the built environment, right, so much of the infrastructure, um, not even just public but private, that's built up around the suburbs in the United States, for example, right, are completely, completely um, sort of invested with this uh, philosophy and this lifestyle of the car. So like the strip mall is a perfect example of that. The freeway that runs right through an urban area, yeah. having destroyed whole neighborhoods, having cut off sections of the city from one another. We take that for granted now, but that was a choice. You know, that was a, a, a specific choice that also took away other choices, like having good rapid transit in cities, right? Yeah, or like, um, well, even in Los Angeles, right? And what, ha what really happened in Los Angeles, um, the Pacific Electric was bought up by national city lines uh, and uh, converted into sort of a bus system, if I recall, and then that was sort of gradually dismantled from there. There were some Pacific Electric freight operations that kept going for a while, and that was absorbed by the Southern Pacific. Um, where was I going with this? Uh, we, we sort of saw like public transit dismantled in areas where they had it, you know, very well um, established, um, and even very high-quality public transportation, right? So places like Louisville, for, in, for instance, had uh, an elevated railroad similar no to... Yeah, Louisville had an elevated railroad... Mm -hmm. But that was dismantled very early, like wow. 1915 or so. Sioux City, Iowa had one, too. No one knows about that one. Holy <laughs> shit. Folks, uh, elevated railroads in Louisville, Kentucky, and Sioux City, Iowa. Yeah. Who knew? And you, 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 you sort of saw, right, Los Angeles, right? So especially right before World War II, 
people were looking at dramatic municipal expansions of public transportation, including they were going to build a full subway system, like sort of like the IND subway system in New York City. Which was the public alternative to what the private subways were at the time. It yeah. was the sort of genesis of the idea of the second system, which yeah. was going to be this massive massive increase in, in public transit in the city. And the, yeah. the, the independent system in New York City was built to just the most absurd standards. It's incredible. And if they had built a second system, I mean, that would have been... You know how like there's four-track subways in New York City? Imagine an eight-track subway. I've seen... <laughs> dude, you and me, and part of the reason why I want to do this episode and why I wanted to pod with you mm -hmm. is because... I know that there's very few other individuals in this world who have poured over the map for the second system yeah. from the 1920s and 1930s in the way that I have. So trust me, when you say, imagine what it would be like, I've imagined, okay? I've looked over those plans, and I would love to live in a city that had a second system, but I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, I, you need to talk to my, uh, my friend who works for the NTA. Oh, I'd love to talk with <laughs> yeah. him. I mean, that's... That's another episode all in yeah. of itself. So even yeah. Philadelphia, right, was going to have a massive expansion. We here. were we were going to have the, the the Taylor plan in Philadelphia is interesting. It was not it, very little of it was implemented. We got the Broad Street subway, which is a four track subway from Olney, which is a station way up north on Broad Street, to City Hall Station, and then Walnut Locust, and it's two track all the way down to the sports complex. That was going to be. They were going to have several branches off of that. Um, some of it was built a little bit, like there's a never-used subway tunnel and a bridge over the Wissahickon Creek. Um, there's there's a subway tunnel that was built and never used under Arch Street. What we got now is the Market Frankfurt line, which is east-west, and the Broad Street line, which is north-south. It was going to be sort of like a loop in the center, similar to what Chicago has, but underground. Which is not a very good system for running trains, but that was what we were going to do. It would do. have been better than what you have now. It would be better than what we have now because there's so many parts of the city you can't get to on, you know, subways or elevated trains. You can get there on buses, but it takes a long time because we don't want to do high-quality bus infrastructure. Well, and you spent a lot of time dealing with this on your channel, but, like... I mean, why is this important, right, is the question. I mean, it's obviously important because what we're talking about, like, directly affects our lives today. But it's a class issue at yeah. the end of the day, right? Who is it that largely takes buses and subways and elevated trains and trolleys? It's working class people. Yes. You know, getting around to work, getting around to visit their friends and families, getting around to shop for things that they need. So this is a, obviously a very, very important issue and one that there's serious gridlock around in the United States. There's serious gridlock around public transportation in multiple ways, um, especially yeah. when you talk about buses, um, which is that, like, we're, we're not thinking about, you know, we're, we're looking at, like, politicians on, you know, Republicans and Democrats, you know, any kind of person out there, like, they're not concentrating on public transportation as, like, a, uh, an equitable issue because, like, you know, we may have a miracle tech solution around the corner at oh, any yeah. time, right? It may be, you Elon's know, weird boxy cyber truck, for we're, example. We're going to have, like, um, we're going to have self-driving cars that can, like, you know, they'll be able to use road infrastructure more efficiently because they'll have AI, um, which none of this stuff is real. That's the best way to describe it. But, like, even something like even Mr. Bernard Sanders, Green New Deal, 
fails miserably in the aspect of transportation, right? Is that right. That's because right. It, it focuses almost entirely, like the biggest part of the spending is buying everyone an electric car. As really? opposed in, to... St. Bernard's plan? In St. Bernard's plan, yes. Where we really are looking at, like, preserving our, say, our, our current terrible, like, in... Okay, I'll, I'll continue talking. Okay. Should you give me one, too? <laughs> All right. We're, we're preserving our current, like, terrible, like, inefficient transportation system that no one, that serves no one well, and we're just making it run on electricity when we could have so much more and we could do it so much more easily if we were talk if we were seriously investing in public transportation as opposed to, you know, just having everyone have their same miserable two-hour commute from the Poconos, you know, and and doing it with an electric car or a self-driving electric car. So there's um even even within this sort of moderate social democratic horizon that say like Bernie Sanders and mm -hmm. AOC and others in the yeah. United States are trying to push forward, even there there's not a sort of adequate socialist project or platform for like an integrated and effective public transit system in the United States. Well, so yeah, because ultimately the we've built our society around the automobile so much that it's inconceivable how we would do it any other way, right? Um, I think it's Andre Gores wrote this wonderful essay a while back called, well, a while back, several decades ago, called The Social Ideology of the Motor Car, where mm. he, he compares the personal automobile to a villa by the sea, mm. right? Which is that it, it not everyone can have this it's a luxury right it's a, and it, as a luxury it becomes degraded as more people use it mm. right and something like something like um you know a a resort hotel say by the sea works a lot better than trying to give everyone a, their strip of beach it's not just impossible for everybody to have that but the more people you pile onto that particular area, the less the, the less it works for everyone. Yeah, the desirable yeah, it, qualities that were there to begin with even exist anymore. Yeah, it's, it 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 continually degrades the experience as more people use it. Right. So that's cars. Yeah, and that's cars. I mean, and it happens to a certain extent with public transportation, but that's to a much lesser extent, um, <laughs> because yeah, you can, you can have overcrowding delays on the subway, but like that that is to a much lesser extent than than on a highway where suddenly one guy breaks the wrong way and now there's a traffic jam that exists for four hours. Right. <laughs> and plus, the, it's, it seems like it's a lot easier to rapidly increase capacity on like a mass transit line as long as you have the sort of tracks and the infrastructure in order to do that. Building one more track on a rapid transit line is equivalent to building like an eight-lane freeway, I think. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I mean, this gets down to the crux of the matter, which is that you and I have both read The Power Broker. Mm -hmm. uh, Caro's, uh, what's his first name? Robert Caro. Robert Caro. Yeah. Robert Caro's uh, incredible biography slash sort of um, analysis of uh, this master builder's career in New York City and across the country and the ways in which this car culture that uh, Justin describes was a particular vision at a particular point in time and once we were sort of stuck in that groove, once we were stuck in uh, this car-centric mindset, everything that was built up around that, not just physically, but also sort of politically, 
it ended up over-determining so many other parts of what was possible, you know, in American life after that. And we live with the consequences of that to this day. Yeah, and 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 it's 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 just it's just bad. It's not good. It's put bad us place. in a bad place. And also, I just want to say, someone needs to do a uh, prestige television series about the power broker with the same budget yes. as Game of Thrones. Yes, immediately. Oh um, my God! Yes, <laughs> yes, immediately. Post haste, please make yeah. that. That's yeah. such a great idea. That's that's that should be the next. That should be Means TV's first project. <laughs> Nick, you hear that? That's a request from both of us. Okay, we're willing to put uh, Patreon skin in the game. I will put I will put a lot of Patreon skin in that game. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I don't. I feel like you and me could pod for for many many hours, but we've gone uh, pretty far. So I guess yeah. the, the takeaways from this are: um, watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Watch it's a good it. movie. Yeah, it's good. Not just for the um, incisive political economy, but also for the gags, also for the racial humor, and also for Jessica Rabbit, who was the original American uh, hentai. Yes. Um, very quality stuff. You'll feel like you're a kid again. Uh, or at least a pubescent teen. Um, nice lady. <laughs> and then on top of that, too, interrogate and think about <clears throat> car culture in the United States. Um, think about it not merely as an annoyance, but of course also as a deeply political issue. Because we as uh, socialists, communists, anarchists, or whatever, uh, if we leave the terrain of the free movement of peoples to the capitalists, we're, we're going to get shit, right? Yeah. Justin, Elon Musk doesn't have any solutions for us, right? Absolutely not, no. Uh, it's more of the same, but electrically powered, and also he gets the money. If you're listening to this in a car right now, by the way, imagine if you had a train. <laughs> <laughs> How much nicer it would be to not convey your automobile to be not stuck in traffic and all that. Um, Elon Musk is not the solution to your problems. In fact, for that matter, Richard Branson is not the solution to your matters, especially if you're in the UK, right? Yeah. This idea of even like capitalist owned and operated transportation systems, that's also shit too. They're going to gouge you. They're going to fuck you. It might be better than cars, right? But ultimately, we need a um, commonly owned uh, mass transit infrastructure, not just in the United States, but all over the place, that allows, I think, as socialists, we could say is a fundamental human right, which is the right to move around. That should not be tied to how big a highway is. It should not be tied to how much you can pay in order to afford an automobile. It shouldn't be tied to you know, how few cars they've put on this particular piece of track and how much you don't want to deal with how crowded it is. Moving around is a human right, and we as anti-capitalists need to see this as part of the struggle. Yes. Yes, you shouldn't have to buy a giant SUV because that's the only car they're marketing now in order to get to the goddamn grocery store to fucking buy, like, a, a, I don't know... A, a piece of cheese. You shouldn't have to drive to the bar. That's my. That's the big one. You shouldn't bar. have to drive to the bar. If that's not political, <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> you should be able to get your drunk ass home from the bar without paying for a taxi or and without driving yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and to end this out, folks, um, at the end of the day, the one thing you don't want to become is Judge Doom. Okay, you do not want to be the type of person that will genocide a whole group of tunes merely out of your own self-interest. And you certainly don't want to be complicit in destroying perfectly good transit options, okay? So do not become Judge Doom, please. 
yes, please don't become Judge Dune. Don't give Elon Musk the time of the day. Don't believe in self-driving cars. They're not real. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, car bad, train good. That's it, folks. Bus, also good. Yeah. <laughs> A little less good, but also good. Yeah. Trolley bus, very good. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>